Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Alhamdulillah, since last Ramadan, over 4 million people have benefited from, listened to, and downloaded the Qalam Podcast. Tens of thousands of people have benefited from and learned from the various classes, intensives, and seminars that Qalam provides. And inshallah, this Ramadan will be providing even more beneficial content, lectures, and programming for people all around the world, free of any cost or charge to them. In order for us to keep doing this work, we need your support, we need your help, we need you to be our partners in this Sadaqah Jariyah. Please go to supportqalam.com. That's support, Q-A-L-A-M, supportqalam.com, and provide your most generous support. Millions of people all around the world are insha'Allah, bi'idnillah, going to benefit from all of this work, and this will be your sadaqah jariyah for the eternal life of the hereafter. We really appreciate having you as part of the Qalam team and supporting us in this work, this mission, this cause. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Aisha Siddiqa radiallahu ta'ala anha, uh, our mother, the mother of the believers, she narrates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he said, that the best of deeds in one narration that the most beloved of deeds to Allah are the ones that are done with consistency even if they may be very small in size. So it's really beautiful and remarkable and we really appreciate um, folks coming through every single night tuning in every single night um, for the whole last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan to engage in some reflection and remembrance of Allah and prayer and worship and dua. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us. Jazakumullah khairan. Ustad is going to get us started, inshallah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. So, um, Ibn Qudama is taking us on a journey these last 10 nights. And he is first you know, introducing us to our reality, which was time, small amount of time, right? Asr. And then he's t- teaching us and telling us about the things that will deplete us from all of the goals that we hope to accomplish. So he's warning us about things like backbiting, like judging others. Um, and now he's giving us some good actions, some virtues that we can learn and that we can adopt and adapt and take home. Um, Obviously, th- this book is not particularly connected to the month of Ramadan in any way, by authorship or by even necessarily recommendation. This is a book you can read any day of the year. But it is really, really nice that we're reading this in the last 10 nights because this is when people begin to really refine themselves and to like do things that they don't normally do, right? Like being awake at midnight on a Sunday, uh, you know, in the masjid, listening to talks and trying to benefit these are things that are really unique and special. And so one of the things that is really amazing about Ramadan is that, again, it gives us a taste of all of these different acts of worship. And I was just reading, subhanAllah, in another text that one of the other scholars of our tradition said that Allah Ta'ala gave you so many different kinds of worship because He knows that within your soul you need a little bit of variation. You can't just pray all day, all the time. Or you can't just sit and make dua all the time. You need the ability to do both. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to make dua, and then I'm going to make adhkar, and then I'm going to make istighfar, and then I'm going to make tasbih, and then I'm going to make, you know, give sadaqah. And there's so many different types of, of ibadah. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala knows that we, we require that, right? Just like we have diversity in personality and in traits and in, per, in everything, we also, Allah Ta'ala has gifted us the diversity and variation in worship because that's the reason of our existence, to worship Him, right? So, one of the acts of worship that we really dig deep into, and I know, mashallah, Sheikh Abdul Nasser obviously talks about this a lot. Sheikh Mikhail last night talked about this a lot as well. Is the act of worship known as a dua, dua, which is supplicating, which is asking, calling upon, uh, in some ways, right, begging, pleading with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So 
Ibn Qudama here in this section, he talks about a dua bi khushu' that a person making dua, but a dua that he qualifies as with humility and with quality, with focus. Because as with everything, you can do things, um, you can do things or you can do them well. And so his recommendation, his focus is to do things well. So he says, That your job is to make dua with these qualities. Number one, he says you should be making it with humility. Number two, with submission. Number three, with weakness, right? To the point where a person, you know, feels like their feebleness, essentially. And number four is with a tone of desperation. So these are the four qualities of a person making du'a. Number one is they have to be humble. If a person's not humble, if they think that they're self-sufficient, they'll never find themselves turning to Allah for help. I mean, if a person thinks they're self-sufficient, they rarely ask others for help, other humans, let alone Allah. You know, the, the, the joke about the person carrying in all the bags of groceries, right, in one try. Someone like, do you need help? No, I don't need help. This, this false sense of self-sustenance. I'm good. When a person cannot admit when they need help, they will find it very difficult to turn to Allah and seek help. So the first thing he says is, you have to be humble. You have to know your own weakness. You have to know your vulnerability. You have to be able to admit it. Nobody likes to admit that they're weak. But Allah in the Quran tells us that He made us weak. He created us not to be weak, but He created us with an element of weakness. Right? Why? Well, one of the wisdoms of that weakness being there is that it will always encourage us to go back to Allah. If a person thinks that they're strong, they'll never have that motivation. Right? The kids only go back to their parents when they're scared or when they're crying or when something's wrong. So he says, number one is humility. Number two is submission, to submit to Allah. What does this mean? It's a little bit different than humility, although it comes from humility. It's a little bit different, right? Because submission is the action of recognizing yourself, humbly recognizing yourself, and then saying, that I'm going to submit to Allah. Aslamtu lillah. I've made that decision. Intellectually, cognitively, I understand that I'm going to submit to Allah. This is the, the famous hadith, the well-known narration of the Prophet ﷺ, that when he was giving advice, right? He said what? That if everyone gathered to try to benefit you, then they would not be able to benefit you. إِلَّا مَا كَتَبَهُ اللَّهُ لك, That accept that which Allah Ta'ala ordained. And the same, if they tried to gather an entire nation or an entire ummah, right? That to harm you, they would not be able to do that, even by a bit. Be in, except what? So submission is the action of recognizing that concept, but recognizing it in your heart and in your deeds. I realize, I submit to the fact that who is in control? Everyone say it. Who's in control? Allah. Allah is in control. I submit to that. So when I know that Allah is in control, Am I going to seek aid or assistance from others? No. Right? So you have to get there mentally. You have to get there mentally. Even when it comes to things like medicine, things like, and this is where, again, your iman interacts with your day-to-day. -day. A person who thinks that this person will fix my problem, or this knowledge, this diploma, this degree, this thing will fix my problem, Allah very gently, but very sometimes sternly, Reminds us, you know, you'll go to a doctor and they'll say, well, it could be one of 27 things. And you're like, are you serious? How are you going to do this? Well, we just have to run tests and keep eliminating until we find out which one it is. And then they run tests and sometimes, subhanAllah, they'll come back and they'll say, we don't know. We actually don't know. And you're sitting there as a patient or as a relative of the patient, you're saying, you don't know. No offense to my doctors in the room, by the way. We love you, okay? But you got to admit, sometimes you don't know, Right? And, and it's not, it's, you know, I, I always, whenever I speak to, 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 to physicians, it's interesting. It's almost like they have less confidence than we do in them because they know what it could be. It could be anything. And it could be something that they've never even come across. And really, everything that we're trying to do is just operate within the environment that Allah Ta'ala created and facilitated. So Allah humbles us 
when we think that absolutely, without a doubt, we have complete control, Allah Ta'ala will just temporarily remove our facade of control for a moment. You think that you have everything in, in control? Allah Ta'ala will cause something to happen. Sometimes less critical than others. Just so we can be returned back to a state of submission. Number three, he said, is weakness, which is understanding that you are weak. And no one likes to admit this, but it's not, it's not an insult. It's a statement of fact. That I have to admit that I am weak. At the end of a long day, I need to sleep. When I haven't eaten, I'm hungry. When I haven't had something to drink, I'm thirsty. After I eat and drink, I need to use the bathroom. Right? We are consistently, persistently in a state of weakness. You know what that means? We are in need. We are in need. Right? Oh Allah, you are the one that is needless. You have no needs. And we are completely in need of you. doesn't matter what you did or how much money you have. No, you're still in need. And that neediness, that weakness is essential to dua. And the fourth is, now when you've mastered these three moments of realization, now you can speak to Allah with a humble heart. And you can say, oh Allah, this is my situation. The dua of Zakaria is so beautiful in this. You know, one of the great examples of this Surah Maryam, Allah Ta'ala tells us about the moment where Zakaria is speaking to him. And Zakaria is, is, is calling to him, but very humbly and very shy, you know, meekly says, uh, when, when Zakaria was calling to Allah, and Allah Ta'ala described it as nida and khafiya, that it was a call that was very, very secret and private and light. And then he says, Inni minni wa He says, Oh Allah, my bones are brittle, and my hair is turning gray. Like I am, I am very, very, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. And he's praying for a child. And for those of us who understand how that works, conceiving a child and old age do not follow the same timeline. On the biological uh, uh, scale, they don't go in the same direction. As a person gets older, their chances of conception, obviously Allah is in control of everything, but the way he designed this natural world is that our chances of having a child get to be less as we get older. So Zakaria is admitting this. He's, he's acknowledging this. He's, he's humbly submitting to Allah that I'm turning old, I'm getting old, I'm getting weak. But then he finishes with this humble, beautiful line, وَلَمْ أَكُنْ بِدُعَائِكَ رَبِّي شَقِيَةً Oh Allah, you've never let me down. You've never let me down. So this is the spirit of making dua humbly. I want to share with you some, some other lines that Ibn Khudama, he uh, narrates here about how to have good dua. Because this is important. You're sitting here now, it's the 26th night, tomorrow's the 27th night, or as Pakistan calls it, Laylatul Qadr, definitely. <laughs> Sorry, not Pakistan only, everybody, right? But we know that it could be, right? Many, you know, some scholars say only the odd nights. Others even say, subhanAllah, it could be, they, they hold the opinion that it could be any of the 10 nights, right? So, you know, we'll go ahead and take, inshallah, with, with good hope and optimism that Allah Ta'ala allows us to find it. But I, obviously the odd nights tend to be a little bit more, because of the narrations, they tend to be a little bit more, uh, you know, full. But either way, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marathon of dua. So it's normal for a person when you open your hands, you know, you hear someone like Sheikh Mikail make dua, like Mufti Kamani make dua, and you look at them and you say, man, I wish I could do that. You can. You can. There's just a few things that we have to perfect and become better at in order to do that. So we just went through four of them, but let's talk a little bit about what Ibn Khudama shares with us. So he says that he, 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 he narrates uh, from... Uh, um, uh, he narrates from one of the older books, from one of the older books that carries a narration of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking to Musa. And he says that, uh, O Musa, when you call upon me, right, He says, make sure that your tongue is behind your heart, or is, is in front of your heart. Make sure, or behind your heart. Meaning what? Make sure that you're speaking from the heart. Right? Make sure that your tongue is not in, in, in contradiction with your heart. Make sure that they're in line. Okay? Like one in front of the other. This is one of the key things that a person needs to do to make their dua strong. Instead of talking, first think, reflect, go through the, the, the moment in your head of what is it that my heart is asking for. So for some of us, we're asking for, oh Allah, give me a job that pays me more. But in reality, we're actually asking for something else. Money is not going to solve your problems. 
What you might be asking for is contentment. Oh Allah, I want to be content. And you think money will make you content, but in reality, money actually doesn't make you content. It just makes you buy more things. <laughs> so instead of saying, oh Allah, give me more money, when you think about what your heart really wants, you might say, oh Allah, give me, en- give me contentment with what I have and give me enough to take care of myself. <laughs> and now that dua becomes a lot more powerful. A lot of people pray for certain things and maybe companions, maybe marriage, maybe this, and they might just be lonely. Oh Allah, give me company in the form of whatever is best for me. A spouse, oh Allah, give me good friends, oh Allah, give me this. But never just stop at the thing. We always stop at the item, like the material thing, the tangible. Explain to Allah why it is that you need that. Oh Allah, I'm lonely. Oh Allah, I feel left out. Oh Allah, I feel like a, an isolated person. I would, oh Allah, I would love to have a companion to be with, to keep me company. Oh Allah, allow me to find one. That kind of dua. Oh Allah, I, I, I want to feel the fulfillment of having a child. It's not just, oh Allah, give me children. Explain, open up, right? And I'll tell you a little thing that I, I, I've, I always use for myself. At the end of this, I'll tell you a, a, the four-step equation that I use. So he says, oh Musa, when you call upon me, call upon me with your heart from behind your, with your tongue from behind your heart. And then he says, وَإِذَا قُمْتَ بَيْنَ يَدَيْ When you stand before Allah, or in this case, when you stand in the moment of making dua, don't stand proud and arrogant. That's not how people ask for anything. If someone comes to you and asks for something, and they say, hey, I don't really need it, but um, you know, if you want to. That, that, that arrogance is not, going to, is not going to exude need whatsoever. How do you stand before Allah? How do you sit before Allah? How do you call upon Him? You call upon Him as someone who, in that moment, your need is so heavy that you feel a little bit insignificant. And you feel very, very, I don't want to use the word, you know, worthless, but you just kind of feel like, oh Allah, like, I can't even help myself. I can't help myself. I need this, right? I've, I've, I've exhausted all my options foolishly before coming to you, and now I'm coming to you realizing that I, I've, I can't do this by myself. And then he says that, um, and when you speak to me, and when you speak to me, when you when you when you speak, you know, closely with me, when we're when we're in this this du'a, this dialogue of du'a, he says that speak to me with a heart that is uh, in reverence, is is in is in awe of me, right? Meaning what? You know, when you talk to someone and you're like lose focus on what they're saying, you start to drift. That's the opposite of what he's saying. Don't drift in your du'a. Don't drift. You say, Allahumma, and you're like, man, that qara'i was amazing. <laughs> Allah, that's not good dua. That's not biqalbin wajalin. That's, that's, that's not good, right? Walisanin sadiqin, and be truthful. Be truthful. Allah knows what you're going to say, but be truthful. Why? Because it helps you be honest. If you lie to yourself, then your tongue will not be able, your heart will not be able to articulate what it is that you need. Okay? Um, and then he continues, and I'm going to read, I'm going to try to summarize because Sheikh has to you know, do his part, inshallah, as well. He says, at the end of your dua, entrust all of your affairs to Allah. At the end of it, entrust everything to Allah. And he says that, at the end of it, tie, the, tie your dua together with the knowledge that you know that nothing that was not determined by Allah to be for you, meaning the best for you, will come to you. If Allah Ta'ala did not assign it to you for the best moment, for the best uh, outlook of your life. Ibn Qudama says that. If you don't get what you want, or if you don't get it when you want it, then understand that Allah's timing is better than your timing. Allah's timing is better. Whenever I, I talk about this little like moment of, you know, relegating the decision-making to Allah. Remember, you're making a request. You're not making a demand. Dua is a request. We're not demanding anything. We're, we're calling upon Him, but we ultimately are saying, Oh Allah, we trust You. We trust You. So number one is we're on God's time, not on my time or your time. Number two is Allah will give it to you. As Ibn Atta'illah says, He will give you what He wants, not what you want. And He will give it to you when He wants to, not when you want it which is the element of submission. It's not, it's not Allah Ta'ala flexing. Allah doesn't need to flex. 
it is Ibn Atta'Allah reminding us that what? Allah is not going to give you something in a moment where you are actually not going to be beneficial in receiving it. If Allah Ta'ala introduces you to your spouse, but you're three years old, you know what I mean? You could make dua for something, as much as we chuckle and laugh at that, some of us are full-grown adults asking for something that would be as nonsensical as Allah giving it to a child when they were asking for it and they need it as an adult. So maybe Allah will give you that thing and it's in queue, but Allah is waiting for the, not waiting, subhanAllah, but Allah Ta'ala is get it, ordain it for you, provision it for you when the timing is perfect for you because you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself, right? So submitting to that reality, submitting to that point and realizing it. And then Ibn Qudamah, he quotes the hadith that we mentioned where that nothing Allah Ta'ala has ordained for you will miss you and nothing that Allah Ta'ala has prohibited from you will ever get to you. So don't have big eyes. Don't look around the world and see what other people are getting. Don't look and see what other people are, are achieving because the reality is whatever is for you will be there for you inshallah when it's meant to be. Then he says this beautiful line and then we'll conclude with this inshallah. He says, well there's two things and we'll conclude. He says, Understand that the person who is themselves in the ocean, like floating, like, like uh, uh, lost at sea. He says that, that person is لَيْسَ هُوَ بِأَحْوَجِ إِلَى اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَإِلَى لُطْفَهُ مِمَّنْ هُوَ فِي بَيْتِهِ That person, even though they're floating in the ocean and they're in a state of danger, that person is not somehow more in need of Allah than the person sitting in the safety of their own home. Both of those people are equally in need of Allah. In fact, I was reading a tafsir. You know the ayah in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala talks about the person who is crashed, uh, you know, they're shipwrecked, and they call out to Allah, and they promise to, to, to worship Him if He saves them. And then Allah says, and then He saves them, and then they go back about their daily life, and they forget their promise. I was reading a tafsir of that, I forget by who, and the, pers- the, the, the mufassir, in a moment of like, it was less of a technical moment, but it was more of a reflective moment. The mufassir said, isn't it incredible how that person is more in need of Allah now that they're on land than they were when they were shipwrecked at sea? Because when they were shipwrecked at sea, at least they recognized that they needed Allah. Isn't that crazy? But when the person came back to the, when Allah Ta'ala gave them safety, brought them back to the shore, the person started to float away from Allah. You see how the metaphor is so powerful. When the person was actually floating, they were floating closer to Allah. When you are in a moment of calamity in your life, you're actually getting closer to Allah. But then when things all settle and your life is stable, sometimes if we don't have enough shukr and gratitude to Allah, the stability allows us the audacity to leave Allah. And so those trials, those, those crises that hit us in our personal lives are sometimes moments for us to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So Ibn Qudama says, don't think for a moment that someone who is sitting in the safety of their home is somehow less in need of Allah than the person who is floating at sea. He says that the same one that saves the person who is floating at sea is the same one that will save the one who is in their home. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say before Shaykh the Nasser, inshallah, continues with us is that when we make dua, when we supplicate to Allah, there is a claim and there's always got to be proof to that claim. right? If I tell you that I love you, but I don't act like it, at some point you're going to feel the contradiction. Right? If I say, I love you, but I don't treat you well, I don't check up on you, I don't, you know, at some point you're gonna say, I don't think you really love me because you keep saying that statement, but then like you don't do anything to show it, right? So Ibn Qudama, he tells us a, a, a story or a narration of a man who went and he sought out the advice of some individuals. So he went to uh, Bishr, Bishr, who is known as Bishr ibn Harith, or more famously Bishr al-Hafi. And he went to him and he uh, sought him a question. And uh, Bishr asked him, what, what, what are you here for? He goes, I have a request. So then he told him, okay, what is your request? And then Bishr, uh, the man told Bishr, he goes, I owe a lot of debt, but I have no way of paying them. Like I owe a lot of money, but I'm, I'm broke. So what should I do? And Bishr told him, you should, you should be awake in the middle of the night praying. Like, are you praying to Hajjud? 
And the guy's like, no. Bisher's like, okay, then you don't, you're not really, you're not, you're not understanding how needy you are. And then he said, I went to Abu Abdullah Ahmed bin Hanbal, which if you can know that the tension there between those, not tension, but the, 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 the range between these two individuals, basically the story is il- illustrating that he went to two different schools of thought and he went and he talked to Imam Ahmed and he said the same question. I have a need. What's your need? I have a lot of debt, but I have no money. Imam Ahmed said, are you praying? He said, no. Imam Ahmed's like, what are you doing? Neither of them initially asked, of course, neither of them initially asked, what's your job? What business are you in? They first opened their advice by saying, are you making dua? Right? So sequence is important. How we proceed to Allah is important. Don't save Allah as a last resort. Don't save Allah as some like in the back of your pocket. Dua is not something that you hold in the back of your pocket. Dua is the first step that you take on that journey to Allah, is dua. That's why when you, when you look at your entire life as a Muslim, there is literally a masnoon dua for everything that the believer does. From waking up, to entering the bathroom, to getting dressed, to eating, to finishing eating, to putting on clothes, to going to work, to leaving the house, to going to the market, to leaving the market, to purchasing. There's literally a dua or an, a zikr for everything. Why? Because the believer believes that the first step is always engaging with Allah. And then, after I've engaged with Allah, then I'm going to take it upon myself. Okay? So this is the way that a person engages in humility of, their, of making their dua. I'm going to share with you guys four things and then I'll let Shaykh take over inshallah. The four things that I think about for dua, and write this down, okay? Number one, when you make dua, you need to revolve your dua on these four topics, four themes. Number one is things that you are grateful for. Every dua begins first, not by asking, but by thanking. You recognize that before you seek more, you have to first acknowledge what you've been given. It's rude, it's impolite to go to someone that's given you more than you can even handle and to say, hey, I want some more. I have another list. Before you say, thank you so much for giving, okay? Number one, what you're grateful for. Number two, acknowledge your regrets. Talk to Allah about the things you regret. What are the things that, out of all the provisions he gave you, but oh Allah, I still messed up. You gave me a car, I still didn't go to the masjid. You gave me health, I still didn't worship you the way that I could. You gave me money, I still haven't done enough sadaqah. Acknowledge those regrets. You gave me healthy eyes, I still looked at the things I should have. You gave me a healthy tongue and mouth, I still talk about people. And you acknowledge that. Why? Because the nafs needs to be put in its place. It needs to be. Every single person on this earth, everyone who has existed, except for the Prophet had this negative influence that needed to be put in its place. So acknowledging regrets is a way of humbling yourself. Okay, number three, what are your greatest hopes? What are the things that you need from Allah? Your greatest hopes, what do you hope, to, what do you aspire to accomplish? What do you need? Obviously, akhirah is there, but then obviously your dunya as well. And number four, the fourth theme, what are your greatest fears? And these are all taken, I don't have time, but these are all, all of these themes are extracted from the du'as of the Qur'an of the Prophet Oh Allah, we wronged ourselves and if you don't forgive us and have mercy upon us, then we're going to be, we're done for. That is a person talking to Allah about their greatest fear. That is, that is a person recognizing in that moment, Oh Allah, if you don't give this to me, then what will I do? No one else can give it to me. If you revolve your du'a around those four themes, I promise you, I promise you, you will not run out. Your du'a will not be dry. Your du'a will not be vague. Your du'a will not be, uh, you will not get lost looking at the carpet or looking at the wall. If you are honestly focused and spend time crafting your du'a around those four things, you will find benefit in it, inshallah. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us the ability to supplicate to Him humbly and truly. And then we ask Allah Ta'ala to uh, uh, hear and answer our supplications. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. <clears throat> Again, not for, I have to explain, 
Again, my wife has to go to the Qiyam, inshallah. She, we have to s- switch shifts, inshallah. So I'm leaving, not out of bad adab for Shaykh Abdul Nasser. This is not proper. But I want you guys to understand, just it's a circumstance, unfortunately, of uh, not having babysitting, all right? Which we'll talk about after Ramadan, inshallah. Okay, salam alaykum. The next thing that Ibn Qudama touches upon here is it's complementary to what Ustad Abdurrahman talked about. He talked about the concept of dua, supplication, invocation, talking to Allah. To put it into simple terms, talking to Allah. The next thing he talks about is al-munajat. It's supplementary to the concept of talking to Allah. Al-munajat basically means to turn to Allah with your heart at a moment of great pain. To open up your heart to Allah, to pour your heart out to Allah at a time when your heart is broken, when you feel broken. And because dua, while he very beautifully explained the aspect of sincerity, being sincere, being devout, being dedicated, being completely connected to Allah. But dua is something, as he was explaining, that's something that has to just be a part of our daily life and our daily routine. Every morning, every afternoon, every evening, every night. We're constantly making dua to Allah, or we should be. But then there are those, there are those particular moments where the world, life, circumstances... Difficulty, adversity, tragedy breaks us. And breaking or kind of cracking a little bit under pressure, you know, bending but not breaking, where you start to crack a little under the pressure, that by the way, that is not a sign of weakness of faith. It's not. That just simply means that we are human. There's a verse in the Quran that was revealed under such, you know, such a terrible circumstance. A Sahabi, his name is Ammar, Ammar bin Yasir, radiallahu ta'ala anuma. He became Muslim in the very early days of Islam in Mecca. And he then convinced his parents, his father Yasir and his mother Sumayya, to accompany him to go meet the Prophet and they both became Muslim as well. And the whole family became Muslim, but then when they were discovered to be Muslim, they were poor folk. They were simple folk. They were like servant people. They were persecuted. And they were tortured. To the point where his mother, Sumayya, she's the first person from this ummah who gave her life for Islam. That Abu Jahl threatened her that leave Islam or else. And she told him to his face, you can't do anything. And he felt so, and people started snickering at him. That this lady, this old lady, little old lady that you're torturing is telling you off. Calling you out. And so he became enraged and grabbed the spear and he killed her in broad daylight. And she gave her life for Allah, for Islam. She's the first shaheed. The, his father, Yasir, radiallahu anhu, eventually died due to the prolonged suffering and the persecution and witnessing his wife being murdered like this in broad daylight. Ammar was left all by himself. Now, Ammar is somebody, let me tell you the end of his story. He's somebody about whom the Prophet said that you will die as a martyr and you will be welcomed into paradise. He was somebody, the Prophet ﷺ called him Marhaban uh, bitayyib al-mutayyib. He called him beautiful, the man that is beautiful and God has made him even more beautiful. The Prophet ﷺ called him a sight for sore eyes. The Prophet ﷺ had so much love for him. But after his mother was murdered, his father died due to torture. And they started really putting the screws to Ammar. Now they directed all of their attention on him. And they really started to put the screws to him. And he was starting to crack under the pressure. And they said, the only way that will let you go, that will stop torturing you, is if you say you no longer believe in Muhammad. 
sallallahu alayhi wa So finally, one day, they pushed him past his physical limits. And he screamed out. He said, fine, fine, I don't. I don't believe. But he just said it from his tongue, not from his heart. They let him go. They released him. He came running, crying like a mess to the Prophet ﷺ, sobbing, weeping, crying like how a child cries. O Messenger of Allah, O Messenger of Allah, what have I done? And the Prophet ﷺ sat him down and comforted him like you comfort your own child. It's okay, it's okay. And then he told him, Allah has revealed a verse about you in the Qur'an. مَنْ كَفْرَ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ إِيمَانِهِ That doomed are the people who disbelieve in God after having believed in Him. إِلَّا Except مَنْ أُكْرِهَ Somebody who is being tortured. وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ But that person's heart was full of faith. That person's heart was full of faith. So the person who maybe had to say something because they were torturing him, but that person's heart was full of faith, that person is a believer in the eyes of God. So I only bring that up, it seems kind of off topic, I bring it up to demonstrate, to just illustrate rather, that munajat, this pouring your heart out to Allah, <clears throat> is particularly relevant and significant to the times and the moments where we feel like we are cracking under the pressure. Now, just that phrase, somebody starting to crack under the pressure, gives, you know, just the expression gives off the, 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 the sense that maybe somebody is weak. And no, no, that's not true. But we are human. And Allah has not obligated it, uh, upon us beyond our capacities. So, when that person starts to feel broken, and when you start to kind of wear and tear and break and crack under the pressure, in that moment, before anything else, before saying anything, before doing anything, before reacting in any way, that is the moment, that is the time when you want to open up your heart and pour your heart out to Allah. And we have an example that he shares with us here in the text from the Prophet wasallam. It's a, it's a more lengthier kind of event. So I won't <clears throat> go into all of it, but you know, um, you can go online, you can go to the Qalam podcast and the Sira podcast and look up the journey to Ta'if and listen to the more detailed accounts. But basically, after about 10 years, a decade, <clears throat> of preaching and teaching the message of Islam in Mecca, the Prophet wasallam, the situation in Mecca became untenable. And the Prophet wasallam, by of course the permission of Allah, decided to explore opportunities to establish a Muslim community outside of Mecca. And the first opportunity that he explored was the city of Ta'if. The city of Ta'if is about 67 miles away from the city of Mecca. All right, what we would call about an hour away. Except that in those days, traveling through the desert on foot, as the Prophet ﷺ did, it was a minimum of about three to four days worth of journey. The Prophet ﷺ, this was the second largest city in Arabia after Mecca. And it was home to the second largest tribe after Quraysh called Banu Thaqif. The Prophet ﷺ, along with the young man who was like a son to the Prophet ﷺ, Zayd bin Haritha, one of the first people to accept Islam, they, took, they undertook this journey. And they traveled and it took them about three, four days to arrive at Ta'if. And then they spent about three, four days in Ta'if and then they traveled back from Ta'if. Overall, it was about a 10-day long expedition. When he arrived there in Ta'if, he wanted to preach and teach the message of Islam, but there was a protocol. He's an outsider. The protocol was you have to go and get some kind of clearance from the leaders of the community. So the Prophet ﷺ met with the three sons of the chief of Ta'if, Abu Mas'ud al-Thaqafi. He was either dead or on his deathbed, so his three sons were kind of running things. And all three of them essentially, in summary, rejected the Prophet ﷺ. 
So we're not interested. And some of them even mocked him and ridiculed him. The Prophet ﷺ, after seeing their unfavorable response, he told them, that's fine, that's okay. I will leave quietly, peacefully. I will not cause a ruckus. I will not cause a riot. I will not cause any trouble. I ask that you also grant me the same courtesy of letting me go in peace. One of them had no intentions of doing that. So he sent some people out into the marketplace, into the streets, that gathered together all the troublemakers in town and basically go and harass him and make his exit from Ta'if something that he will not soon forget. Don't kill him, because that will start a war. But make it very painful for him. And so what they did was they lined up, they gathered hundreds of people together, they lined up with rocks, and they decided to throw rocks at the Prophet For three miles, they followed him and threw rocks at him. He bled so much, particularly for, from his lower extremities, from his legs, because that's where they were aiming the rocks. Because They didn't want to kill him, but they wanted to make it painful. That he bled so much from his feet and from his legs that his sandals became completely soaked in his own blood. The blood dried and kind of glued his sandals to his feet. And after three miles, they got tired. So they left. And the Prophet ﷺ finally stopped at a place. There was a tree and there was a garden nearby. We visited that location. And the Prophet ﷺ sat down under the tree. And Zayd bin Haritha, who was with the Prophet ﷺ, trying to protect him, but it was a mob. He was crying. And he tried to remove the sandals from the feet of the Prophet ﷺ. They wouldn't come off until he had to rip them off. And his skin was peeling off with the sandals. And the blood started to flow again. And Zayd is sitting there with the blood of the Prophet ﷺ on his hands and he's crying. Weeping. And at that point in time, when the Prophet ﷺ is bleeding, middle of nowhere, sitting under a tree, like, how, what do I do? How do I get back home? Why would they do this? The Prophet ﷺ, before doing anything, before thinking anything, before saying anything, he opens up his heart and he pours his heart out to Allah. And his dua is shared with us through the books of Sirah and some of the books of Hadith like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, At-Tabarani and others. He says, Allahumma ashku ilayka du'afa quwwati O Allah, to you alone do I complain of my weakness. Wa qillata hilati and to you alone do I complain of my lack of resources. And only to you do I complain, O Allah, that I did not command enough respect in the eyes of these people. It's my fault. Allahumma anta rabbul musta'afin wa anta arhamur rahimin wa anta rabbi. O Allah, you are the Lord and the Master, the caretaker of the weak. And you are the most merciful of all those capable of showing mercy. And you are my Lord and my caretaker. Ila man takiluni. Whoever you may surrender me to. Ila ba'idin yatajahamuni. Somebody who does not care for me. To rough me up. Aw ila aduwin malaktahu amri. Or to an enemy. And allow him to have his way with me. But even if you did that, O oh Allah. As long as you are not upset with me, I don't care what they do to me. As long as you still love me, I don't care what they do to me. However, oh Allah, your protection is better for me. أعوذ بوجهك الكريم الذي أضاءت له الظلمات وصلح عليه أمر الدنيا والآخرة. And oh Allah, I ask you, I take refuge with you. And your, your, your light, your glory, 
that dispels all the darkness of this world. And your mercy that is that can correct all the ills of this world and the life of the hereafter. I ask you, that never ever be angry with me. Never be upset with me. I will continue to serve you till my very end until you are pleased with me. And there's no ability to do good and no strength to resist evil unless and until you grant it to me. He poured his heart out to Allah. And Allah sent Jibreel, the angel Gabriel, along with the angel who's in charge of the mountains. And he greeted the Prophet and he said, O Messenger of Allah, if you just give the word, the mountains on either side of this town, this valley of Ta'if, will collide together and merge into one another to the point where it'll be as if these people never even existed. They'll literally be wiped off the face of the earth. And the Prophet ﷺ said no. Because when you open your heart up to Allah like that, then whatever bad could have come out, whatever evil could have been in there, is washed away. It's disposed of. And what fills it instead is the light, the nur, the mercy, the benevolence, the faith, the iman, the strength from Allah. That's what fills it. And the Prophet ﷺ said, no. Rather, I pray that these people will one day come to Allah. They'll accept Islam. And if not them, then from their progeny, people will rise who will be faithful. And before the Prophet ﷺ passed away, in the year called Amul Wufud, the ninth year of the Prophet's residence in Medina, basically, a little over a decade from this moment, about 11 or 12 years after he made that dua, a delegation came from Ta'if and became Muslim in Medina. A delegation came from Ta'if and became Muslim in Medina. And just to put things into context, that how powerful this is, that many of us, myself included, where our parents or grandparents, our ancestors might come from the subcontinent, specifically the region um, you know, known as Sindh, the Sindh province. Islam was brought there over a thousand years ago, over 1,200 years ago. Islam was brought there by a, name, by a man named Muhammad ibn al-Qasim, rahimallahu ta'ala, who was from Ta'if. A man from Ta'if, a young man from Ta'if, sailed across the ocean, arrived there, and brought Islam to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in that region. And then got back on his ship and sailed back home. And it was a man from Ta'if. We are the direct, not indirect, the direct result of the du'as of the Prophet And so this is what, you know, the, this is what the Prophet ﷺ taught us. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I'll conclude and end and wrap up with this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to this in the Quran. أَمَّنْ يُجِيبُ الْمُطَّرَّ إِذَا دَعَاهُ وَيَكْشِفُ السُّوءَ That who is the one who answers the call of the distressed and removes difficulty and harm from that person? Allah tells us in the Quran, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَنِي قَرِيبٌ Not if, but when. When my servants ask you about me, he tells the Prophet also, when my servants ask you about me, normally there, this kind of uh, this this kind of presentation or this kind of like wording is common in the Quran. وَيَسْتَفْتُونَكَ فِي النِّسَاءِ وَيَسْتَفْتُونَكَ فِي الْكَلَالَةِ وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الشَّهْرِ الْحَرَامِ قِتَالٍ فِي يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَهِلَّةِ etc. etc. Many places in the Quran. 
They ask you about women folk. They ask you about inheritance. They ask you about the sacred months. They ask you about the keeping of the calendar. They ask you about the spoils of war. And always, whenever Allah says this to the Prophet he then says, قُلْ قُلْ لِلْأَنْفَالُ لِلَّهِ وَالرَّسُولُ قُلْ هِيَ مَوَاقِيتُ لِلنَّاسِ وَالْحَجِّ Right? Allah always says, tell them the following. Here Allah says, when my servants ask you about me, then Allah responds directly, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ I am right here. I'm right here. But then in the next part Allah says, أُجِيبُ I always answer. دَعْوَةً أَدَّاعِي إِذَا دَعَانِي The call of the caller whenever he or she calls me. The dua of the one making dua whenever he or she makes dua to me. Do you hear the repetition? Da'wa da'i da da'ani. Call of the caller whenever he or she calls me. Repetition. This kind of repetition is not normal in the Arabic language, let alone in the Quran, which is perfect language. So when repetition like this is done, it's done for a purpose. It's done to hammer a point home. It's making a point. Which Allah is saying, I've always been here. I've always been waiting. I've always been responding. The problem is, you don't call. You don't call. And then you complain. No one's listening to me. But you don't call. And so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding us, telling us, call. Talk to me. Reach out. Pour your heart out. And if we do that, then we see from the example of the Prophet ﷺ how the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come to our aid. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to be able to open our hearts to Allah and to be able to call out to Allah and to be able to connect to Allah. Inshallah, um, in about five minutes or so, inshallah, we're going to start the Qiyam prayers for tonight. I request everyone that maybe we even head into the musalla early and a couple of minutes before the prayer starts, sit and have that little moment with Allah. Avoid, resist the distraction. Right? And just have a one-on-one -on -one kind of conversation with Allah in your heart. When we're done with the prayers tonight, instead of just, you know, once again just becoming distracted, stay there seated for a couple of extra minutes. And pour your heart out to Allah. And if we're able to achieve that here tonight, we will have a, we will have accomplished, we will have had a very successful Ramadan. May Allah SWT accept from all of us. Jazakumullah khairan. Barakallah fikum. Inshallah, as you know, we mentioned, the 10 days program will continue all the way through uh, Wednesday night. We'll also have it on Wednesday nights, inshallah. So, you know, whether it's the 27th night or the 28th night or the 29th, inshallah, we'll be here. So please keep joining us for the program. Um, and then obviously tomorrow night in Taraweeh we'll have the Khatm al-Quran. So we'll see you then. As-salamu alaykum.